Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. If you want to get somebody's attention, just tell them a good story. That's what this podcast series is all about, success stories. Every week, I'll introduce you to women who are doing great things with their lives, despite every obstacle in their path. Now, I've interviewed over 600 women throughout my career as a broadcaster, and they've taught me so many powerful life lessons. Lessons about courage and purpose, responsibility, perseverance, resiliency, joy, and love. Successful women think differently. Success is so much more than the outcome. It's about the journey. It's about how you got there. In the spotlight this week, Wendy Booker. When she heard the words, you have MS, Wendy envisioned herself in a wheelchair. She was only 43 at the time, but something shifted inside of her. And a little voice whispered, no, don't let this disease define you. And six years later, she would become the first woman with MS to summit Mount McKinley. This is Wendy's success story. Wendy, thanks so much for joining us. Wow, 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Take us back, though, to that moment and shape the story for us when you knew something was wrong and you went to the doctor. Very common outcome, actually, for people with multiple sclerosis. A lot of denial. It'll go away. Sometimes the symptoms do disappear after a few days. After several neurological things that were strange and doing some self-diagnosis, I finally did seek out a doctor. I remember standing there, you look up at this neurologist and your mind is flashing to a million things. I'm thinking, I have to sell my house. I'm in an old antique. I can't get a wheelchair through the door. Everybody with multiple sclerosis knows somebody in their lives who doesn't look very well, who has got quite a progressive disease disability state. And that's where you start. Your, your journey is, uh-oh, this is bad. And my Aunt Matilda has it and, and she's confined to a wheelchair and this is going to be my fate and my future. So that's our starting point. And my story isn't unique. This is really what you hear from everybody who hears the words, you have multiple sclerosis. And it's easy to just sit down and cry for a long time. It is. And that that's human nature. The first thing you do is you become immobilized, as I say. You don't want to look to the past because now you're mourning what you think you've lost. You don't want to look to the future because it's so unpredictable. It's frightening. So you get stuck in that here and now. And I call that the lay on the couch, eat bonbons and watch Oprah because you're not going to go anywhere. You're in that fetal position and you're getting a lot of information and misinformation. And there, too, it's not exclusive to MS. I bet you with a lot of the people that you've interviewed who are facing a challenge, that reaction is all the same of rolling into that ball and saying, I, I'm not going to go out of this house. I'm not going out these four doors. So that's my follow-up question then. So how did you get out of that ball? How did you get off the couch? How did you decide I'm going to put one foot in front of the other? Literally. Literally. Huh. The first thing I was thinking is, wow, I don't feel any different than I did yesterday before I knew I had the MS. It wasn't like all of a sudden, boom, things changed. I'm like, well, yesterday I went for a run with my friend Carol. Didn't know I had MS. Finished the run. Why can't I keep going? What's the difference between before I knew I had the illness? Then as you refer to, I did have this little voice inside of me and it kept saying, there's more to this story. I thought, I'm going to keep pushing back. And back in the time of my diagnosis, this was in the 90s, we didn't have a lot of options for pushing back. There is a lot of luck involved. And I refer to what I call my three S's, self-discovery, serendipity, and a whole lot of stubbornness. Serendipity really plays into a lot of our stories. 
And serendipity are the good things that happen, but you have to be receptive to them because they'll come zinging by and you might miss them, which happens a lot as well. But serendipitously, I got diagnosed just when the first drugs came out. The first therapies for MS became available. And I was a very lucky person that good medicine was finally here for multiple sclerosis. The next thing I did after that diagnosis was get on a therapy. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to see how hard and how far I can push back. And that's really where that first footstep started. So you were part of a group of women, you just mentioned this, who, who ran every morning. And then suddenly there was discussion that you were going to run in a marathon? Yeah, really. It started, this was pre the group. Like The group and I joined after the marathon because they're as crazy as I am. But this was initially a girl I was running with. And we laughed because um, we felt like we got thrown out of every gym we went to for talking too much, which is probably the truth. <laughs> she and I started running because we ran out of options, literally. At the moment of my diagnosis with MS, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She's doing great. But our reaction was the same. And I learned a lot at that moment that it's, it's not what happens to you in life. It's how you react to it. We had each other. We had each other to ping it off of, to say this is going this way, and all the fears we could talk about together. And again, even though the diagnoses are different, the journey is very, very similar. A challenge is a challenge. Now, she's the one. I love to blame her because she isn't able to stand up for herself, unfortunately, because she's not here. So I will blame her. She called me up in the fall of 1999 and said, why don't we run the Boston Marathon? That's the first time I'd ever even thought about that. It was kind of an extreme decision. I remember calling my Dr. Weiner, who's over at the Brigham's, and he said, maybe you should think of doing something less extreme. And again, I went back, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if I end up in a wheelchair for the marathon or from the MS? I might as well have a good time on my way and never looked back. Somehow running the marathon, and I think you've run four marathons run so far. 12 marathons. Oh, my God. <laughs> Somehow that decision morphed into mountain climbing. Tell me that story. Again, serendipity played in. Ran that first Boston marathon. I was asked to speak at the American Neurological Convention. It was here in Boston. After I was done speaking, I was invited out for dinner, and it was a, a plethora of who's who in the MS world, physicians, the pharmaceutical companies, public relations, all of them discussing MS, and Alan Osmond, Donnie Osmond's brother, who is quite afflicted with MS, as is his son now, David, but at the time, David hadn't been diagnosed. Well, these doctors are all discussing the disease and blood-brain barriers and mice models and T1 cells and I laughed because I fixated on Alan Osmond, and I kept saying, well, how many kids do you have? How do you guys do Christmas? Crazy, you know, inane questions compared to the medical jargon at the table. And I'm sure the doctors are thinking, who invited this tits? <laughs> While I was sitting there, the woman to my left said, we have had an opportunity come up. There's a gentleman from Boulder, Colorado, who has multiple sclerosis, and he's looking to put the first team of climbers unguided with MS on Denali or Mount McKinley. I immediately said, I'm in. I want it. I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't know where Denali was. <laughs> I was arrogant, which is part of my story. You have to watch that arrogance, and, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But there was a big arrogance of saying, oh, I just ran the Boston Marathon. How hard can a mountain named Denali be? So well, I it's 20,320 feet. I, didn't I, did, know I did look that up. <laughs> That's one of the tallest peaks in the world. Mm -hmm. So you started training to do this. Tar started training to climb Denali. Two years of training, I spent an inordinate amount of time up in North Conway at the International Mountain Climbing School. Up until then, I had never slept in a tent. I had never camped out. I didn't tell them that. I didn't tell the sponsors any of that. I acted like I knew what I was doing. 
I watched well of everybody else just to make sure I didn't look like a fool. The first time I did start to climb a mountain, I borrowed my son, who was like in eighth grade. I borrowed his sleeping bag, and I didn't know they came in sizes, so I couldn't sleep because I couldn't fit in it. Took, it took lots of, we call it snow school, and it really is one foot in front of the other. Her learning how to just survive in that environment, carrying a pack that weighed 50 pounds and pulling a sled that was 70 pounds and going up the highest vertical rise of any mountain in the world. It was amazing. Tell me some of your memories of that moment when you started coming close to the summit. What were you thinking? Now I'm going to jump 20 years. A few weeks ago, I went to the Boston Women in Media's event, Stories Behind Her Success, with the girl Terry from TED Talks. I loved how she said to the audience, I don't care if you've climbed Everest or a motivational speaker, I have passion, that's not going to get you a TED Talk. You have to dig in deep to find out that one seed or idea that's a gift. I want to do a TED Talk desperately, but I started thinking about it. Now I'll go back. And now I look back at all the mountains I've climbed. Truth be told, I never loved it. I never was like, I can't wait to climb my next mountain. I thought it was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my entire life. And the time that you're on those peaks is very unpleasant and very difficult. You don't feel well. You have a screaming headache because of the altitude. Just walking is impossible because of the thin air. All of that plays in to when you finally do reach the summit because you suffered. You have really earned your time to be on that mountain just because living on a mountain is, that's why people don't live on these high peaks. You can't. So by virtue of being there, when you finally see the summit, my usual reaction to the getting to the top is I burst into tears, which is kind of the girly thing to do. But all that work, all that sacrifice, all those hours spent on the treadmill at the gym and up in the ice and snow and away from my kids really culminates at the same time that you reach the peak at the top. What kept you going when you were that miserable? What did you say to yourself? By then, the word had gotten out that the first person with MS was climbing this peak, and I, I felt like I carried a huge responsibility. I felt I had made a commitment. I don't like to go back on my word. I had put my stake in the ground and said, I am going to be the first person with MS to summit this mountain. And therefore, I had to use a lot of self-talk of, you can do this. You are trained well. You are capable. You are strong enough. You will have setbacks, but look at the, the mission. The mission was to not say, hey, I'm the first person with MS. It became much bigger than that. The, the vision and my mission was to show the world what people with MS were capable of or anybody with a disability. Last night, I spoke at Boston College to the student council for students with disabilities, and I said that to them. A lot of them have hidden disabilities. MS can be a hidden disability. You can't see it. I said to all of them that when you take on a mission like climbing a mountain, it is that responsibility to the cause that's far more important than to the individual. You once said to me years ago, it takes a village to get Wendy to the top of a mountain. Absolutely takes a village. Still to this day, anything I've attempted, a marathon, the mountains, working as a speaker, I have lots of projects going on. There's so many people in my backpack with me. We don't do this alone. This journey is certainly involves our family, our friends, my medicine, my doctor. The village gets bigger and bigger. You can't take credit by yourself because there's too many players that have helped you get to the top. You just mentioned your backpack, <laughs> and I know that there's something you keep in there and leave on every mountain. I carry a man's ashes. John Reed was a professor at Hampshire College, and his widow is a friend of mine. She saw me training at our local gym. And she came up to me and said he had passed away from prostate cancer the fall before I climbed McKinley. And she said, you know, 
I'd be so honored if you took John to the top of McKinley. He, one of his wishes was to have his ashes spread around the world. Some of them were taken by some of his students, but three quarters of them were carried by Wendy Booker. <laughs> and that, for me, was another big piece that I felt committed that he wanted the top. That John never was satisfied if I didn't get to the summit, but it really does drive you to the top to make sure that he gets put where he should be. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. These days, more and more people are working from home. When your computer breaks down, you lose business. This is Dave Elmasian, president of TechHelpBoston.com. Our tech experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer. Same day, next day, and weekends too. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted us since 2000. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. Thank you so much for listening to the story behind her success. I'm Candy O'Terry, and in the spotlight, MS survivor and mountain climber, Wendy Booker. Since your McKinley Summit, you have climbed Kilimanjaro, Mount Elbrus, Aconcagua, Mount Vincent Massif in Antarctica, Kazuko? Kazioko. Kazioko in Australia. I was doing so well for a while. Yeah, that was a tough one. And you have attempted Everest twice. Any memories, any stories along the way that you want to share with us in this interview? Oh, gosh. The mountain, it's an amazing, I got to see the world. And the neatest part about climbing mountains is that you don't see it from the tourist angle. You really, a lot of these mountains like Kilimanjaro are in these tiny little villages off the beaten path. You get to experience the food and the culture and the people. And that to me became paramount. More than the mountains was where they were and what was involved with climbing them. Two stories. The first most important one to me is I was training to climb Everest, and it was recommended that I go to the Himalaya and climb a mountain called Cho Yu. That would have been in 2008, and it's in Tibet. That was also the year of the Olympics in Beijing. Because of political reasons, the Chinese closed the mountain. They didn't want people climbing it, and they particularly didn't want the Sherpa because that gets into the politics of Tibet. Our permits were all pulled. I decided I'd wait until the fall after the Summer Olympics were over and make another attempt, and the exact same thing happened. The Chinese had said nobody's coming in to climb. So we're, we're kind of, now what do we do? And we decided to climb some very obscure and distant peaks in the Himalaya, not where normal people would either trek or climb. There were 18 in two different teams climbing a mountain called Barunse, and we didn't see people for days. We were, it was just us in this valley where all the Sherpa and everybody are. A Sherpa was killed on this climb. He was not part of my team. He was with another team, but he fell off the mountain and was killed. That changes everything. You immediately stop climbing. You have to help with rescue. There were other people who fell. There were a lot of dynamics going on. It was very, very hard. And I found out with some questions that he left behind an 18-month-old little girl and an 18-year-old wife. Well, Nepal is a very patriarchal society, and there's not a lot of options for a young woman and a baby. She can go back to her family, but they're nomadic. They grow potatoes and raise yaks. There's not a lot of income. She might try panhandling during the climbing season and get the trekkers or somebody to give money. The worst is, is she'll go to Kathmandu, and the sex traffic is terrible, and she'll disappear, as will the child. So I thought, I've been given all these incredible gifts. I've been all over the world. I've been doing amazing things. I'm going to raise this little girl. Well, the little girl's now 10. Her name is Ang Fura, and she's in a school that I'm supporting in Nepal. 
I'm trying to get her to come visit the United States this coming year. She's probably in fourth equivalent to our fourth grade. The mother has remarried, which is what you want. It's a happy ending, but it goes bigger because there's kids here in the U.S. at the Donald McKay School in East Boston who are raising this little girl with me. They've been part of my story since 2006. Those kids are now well off in college and adults, but I still am going into that fourth grade class of Mr. Jim Clear's. And every year we do a fundraiser called Pennies for Sherpa, and they raise about $600, which goes to Nepal, to Angfura. So I'm hoping I can bring her to the U.S. this year, because she's the same age as the kids, to be with them at the classroom. I guess my biggest lesson in all of this, of the 20 years, is yes, I got MS. I've been very blessed. I got fabulous doctor, fabulous medicine, and the responsibility to me is to pay it forward. You know, on top of all of this, you have also trained for the Iditarod. You've been to the North and the South Poles. Let me ask you a question, Wendy. Are you the same woman you were before you got MS? Absolutely not. I was stay-at-home mom, three great sons. If I was not in a beautiful hotel or a nice house, or I was definitely a girly girl. I had a wonderful childhood, a wonderful life. Things were pretty easy. I probably took them for granted, as most of us do. I just assumed that's the way the world was. MS humbled me, humiliated me, taught me, opened my eyes, opened my eyes to other people. Never be judgmental because you're not walking in that person's shoes. That then goes back to the hidden disability that people have. You can't be critical because you don't know what they're dealing with. All of that I've learned in the last 20 years. I'm just sad. I'm as old as I am now because there's so much more I want to do. I got to keep going. For me, the most humbling and my biggest aha moment by far was not summiting Everest. I thought that that was a foregone conclusion. I had earned my right to be there. I had done six of the seven summits, first person with MS. There aren't many mountains in the, U in the world I haven't climbed in Ecuador, Mexico, you name it. I trained hard. I was prepared. The MS stopped me. Just between 23 and 24,000 feet, it stopped me in my tracks did it the first year and I kind of pushed it aside, said I need to train harder, I need to change things up. And then I went back the following year and it did it again. That was a horrible moment. I came back to the U.S. and the first thing I did was lay on the couch, eat bonbons and watch Oprah. I was back to that I'm not worthy. I couldn't reach my goal. And I realized Everest is a lofty goal, but it was mine. And MS took it away. And then I thought, well, what does MS do? It stops our dreams. It stops our goals. It takes away our future. We think all those things I had gone around and spoken about at that point for about 15 years were wiped away. And I thought, what can I possibly talk about? What am I going to tell people with MS? You can do it. I couldn't do it. MS took it away. I was very vulnerable at that point, And I started to think, well, what is Everest? It's the top of the world. But then I had this incredible aha moment. It's not the only top of the world. And so I took a team of sled dogs and I went to the geographic North Pole and stood on the top of the world. What was the biggest aha moment for me was I didn't give up on my goal. I just changed how I got there. That has totally changed my mission, my message, and that was my starting point. So I'm thinking that when an obstacle is in your path, the way you get around it is finding another way through. That always have a plan B, absolutely. And there's always another path. I didn't give up on my goal. I just changed how I got there. And all it takes sometimes is a little bit of stopping, taking a deep breath, thinking it through. If you think on it long enough, you can come up with another way to, to be successful, to carry on that mission. I really believe that successful women like you think differently.
What does success mean to you as you look at this life that you've had so far, these obstacles that you've somehow gotten through? What does success mean to you? You have to be careful of that ego piece coming in. It cannot be about you, ever. You have to put yourself second and have to say, this is the path I've chosen. I've written it. It's my mission. But the responsibility are to the people you're reaching. If you put yourself first, it's all going to crash. It's not going to work because that's when the ego is talking. I made a pact long ago with myself. And I remember saying, as I was struggling on these mountains, it's not about the ego. Anytime I kind of feel like, oh, Wendy Booker, you're pretty special. I have to slam myself down and say, this is not about me. This is about what I'm doing and what I'm giving and hopefully creating. And that if I can reach that girl who just finds out, and I say girl because MS affects women twice as much as men. If I can reach that one girl and say, come climb with me, define what your mountain is. You have your mountain, it's MS. What are you going to do about it? That's my mission. I want to put that person first. Use myself to say, hey, I was an unlikely candidate for this. If I can do it, you can do it. But the whole point of everything I've done is to say to that next person just finding out they have MS, find your path, reach your goal, do it your way. Don't let the MS define it and come climb with me. You are now teaming up with Genentech to educate others about MS. So tell me about this project. And by the way, if you want to check out their website, it is gathermS.com. Oh, this is the neatest thing. I started a nonprofit myself back in 2013 called the Climb On Foundation. There's a lot to it. I'm, I'm really gathering stories now. One of the things I wanted to do and identified very early on was it's very confusing when you get a diagnosis. I'll keep it to MS because that's my familiar spot. You go on the internet, there, you go on Facebook, you're bombarded. You look it up online, no matter where you turn, you're getting this information and that information. And it's really, really hard to say which is the right path, where do I turn? So my idea was to get this website that could have all these resources and, and events and things for the patient to become capable, to put it all onto this iPad, in my case, where a patient can say, you know, I want to go to a support group tonight. How do I find one? You put in your city, and it's now been launched in five cities. So in our case, it's really big here in Boston. So I put Boston in and I say, is there a support group near me? I can look it up. They have six categories, health, wellness, community services, everything right there at your fingertips. And I laugh because that was my dream to do it. It was far bigger than one person. I needed Genentech's help. And I love that Genentech is truly doing this for the MS patient. This is, has nothing to do with MS therapies. They don't even know what therapy I take. This really is giving this MS patient the ability to live. All the things I've talked about, it's opening up their world to them. You can find out information about independent living. You can find out where there's a gym close by that the trainer might be really good at working with people with disabilities. The other neat thing is what we're asking for is to get people with MS to self-submit. If you know of a really awesome yoga class that, again, deals with people with disabilities, put it on. It's, there's a spot on their website for submission of events and resources in your area to get them listed on there for other people with MS. So it's one of these perpetuating websites that is created by and for the MS patient. So we're really encouraging people to please, if you know of a really cool service, get it up there for others. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us on the story behind her success. How can our listeners connect with you? I have a website. It's wendybooker.com 
or climbonfoundation.org. What I really, really want are your stories, just like you're collecting. And I call them From Stories Come Success. And I ask people with MS to tell me how do they make that first step? How do they pick up the paintbrush or get that shoe on to start climbing or start running or whatever it is they're starting, what finally got them to do it? And how about their setbacks? We all have them. So this isn't just to be the Pollyanna. This is to say, what is it really like to have multiple sclerosis, to live each day? What are your successes? So I love to get them to answer some questions, and then I put it all over social media. I have an idea brewing to start to do this also in a video format so that we can share these stories. So I have a lot of, of irons in the fire because my success is nothing. I want the success of those to come and climb with me. Just using the mountain as the metaphor. You have your mountain, your mountain is MS. Come climb with me because through those stories, as you know, sharing those stories is what's gonna keep it going and growing and have others be successful because they'll know that they're not alone. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. This is a new series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. Connect with Candy anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story? We'd love to hear it. 